0: Hey rockheads, stop talking to those H&R blockheads and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 434 with guest Aaron Kushan, recorded live Tuesday, March 10th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahila Malik on DVD, ENRTV TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklings.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now... The man who says, Sure, Queen Elizabeth gets an iPod and I get a 1040. Carl Franklin! Hey, Carl Franklin with ya. And this is Richard
1: Campbell. We're the DotNet Rocks guys. We're going to be here for the next hour or so. Uh, If you hear any piano notes during the recording of this show, that's because Al Laporte, the piano wizard, is here fixing the MIDI implementation in my grand piano. Why is that so? Yeah, I got a baby grand piano and it's got a, a full... It's a really ridiculously high-tech thing uh, each key has a little solenoid under it and you can trigger those keys with a keyboard or any MIDI file or anything like that so one of the demos that I do uh, is I play my piano through the internet using software that I wrote but the piano is not generating MIDI data when you play it so he's looking at it and um, just before we started recording he goes "Oh that's not good I said what he goes smoke <laughs> <laughs> You're right, that's not good. so we may not hear any piano notes, but if we do in the background, uh, that's what that is. All hey right. let's get right into better know framework, Richard. All right, sir, what do you got for me this week? Well, as if you uh, if, if you haven't heard this before, uh, Better Know Framework is a little segment I do. It's very short, where I just shine a little light on a dark corner of a .NET framework somewhere, looking at a class or a namespace. It's not training. It's just, hey, here's this, uh, what this does and what it is. Go check it out in detail if you're interested. So uh, we've been doing a lot of WPF stuff, and uh, this today is no different. I'm talking about system.windows.controls.docpanel. Oh. And a doc panel defines an area where you can arrange child elements either horizontally or vertically relative to each other. The remarks say, uh, doc panel enforces a strong content model for child content. And see the children property for more information. The set doc method changes the position of an element relative to other elements within the same container. Alignment properties such as horizontal alignment change the position of an element relative to its parent element. Uh, there's other comments there, and they have some uh, uh, some samples in VB and in C Sharp and uh, in Visual C++ and also some XAML and a nice little graph, a graphic. I'm really impressed with the docs in uh, MSDN for WPF. Very cool yeah. stuff. and this is doc D-O-C-K, not doc D-O-C. That's right, D-O-C-K, right. as in you're docking to
2: one side or another. And it's cool just to think about how sophisticated the WPF uh, infrastructure is. That you can all of this stuff is in there. It's all in there,
1: and there's so much of it. That's why we're that's why we're doing a a, a lot on WPF lately.
2: So, Richard, you got an email? I do indeed. Uh, this one is from Mike Simpson, and it's a call out about Second Life. He ah. says, "Hi guys. First off, I want to say I listen to .NET Rocks religiously, so keep the shows coming." Okay. In your show with Doug Crockford. You had a question about whether Second Life supports voice. I'm sure you've heard it from hundreds of people about this, or maybe even thousands by now, but I'll throw my two cents in. Second Life not only does voice, but it supports both private and public conversations. That is to say, you can have a private conversation with one or more individuals, or you can have a public discourse among all the avatars in the vicinity, at least the ones who have voice turned on. Even better... Second Life's voice support is spatial. If an avatar is to your right, and that's your avatar's right, right? This is all virtual. And it says something, you hear it out of the right speaker, and so on. So the conversation actually has a sense of space. It beats conference calls hands down. Wow. How many times have you zoned out during a conference call, especially when there's half a dozen people talking at the other end, and all their voices are coming through the same little speaker? That's right. It's an interesting idea to just hold a conference call in Second Life. Well, we ought to we ought to look
1: into it a little bit more. I, I ran it a couple of years ago and and you know it was eh, it was okay, but I'm gonna I'm gonna check it out again. And no, thousands and hundreds of thousands of people did not respond
2: with that. You are the first, so well, thanks. Uh, and Mike goes on to say on a related note, I have a product in Second Life, which is a virtual radio system called Slipstream. And it's integrated with an ASP.net site that I wrote, and I'm currently rewriting in MVC. Consequently, and also because I perform live music in Second Life, I get questions from time to time about how to stream music from a client PC into Second Life. Wow. My product works by setting a land parcel media URL and does not itself deal with voice. Some people who do use Second Life's voice support to stream audio to other avatars in the vicinity, it's all low fi but it does work wow it, it's that's very cool let me give you the link to the guy's site it's slipjig.org. very cool is that j-i-g yeah j-i-g Slipjig.org.
1: awesome thanks very much i'm going to check that out
2: yeah thanks a lot mike and we'll be sending you a net rocks mug and if you'd like a mug send us an email .NET rocks at franklins.net
1: well, Richard, let's uh, introduce our guest. This is a Thursday show, and, and we're, we're going to have some fun and kick back here. Arun Kishan joined Microsoft in 2002 after completing his undergraduate and master's degrees in computer science at Stanford University. He's been in the Windows kernel team ever since. He's contributed to the development of several Windows releases, including XP, SP2, Server 2003, Vista, Server 2008, and now Windows 7. During his time in the kernel team, he has been the primary owner for several core technology areas in the operating system, including the thread scheduler, core synchronization facilities, the threads and processes subsystem, the DLL loader, and others. He has currently taken on a role as a software architect and is hard at work on projects that will span the core kernel virtualization and componentization teams. Hey, this doesn't sound like a Thursday
2: show. It sounds pretty hardcore, doesn't it? Yeah. But how often do we get to talk to somebody on the kernel team for Windows? It's really true. Arun, welcome.
3: Thank you.
1: Wow, I, I have so many questions. I don't know where to start. I, I, let's just start with uh, your experiences. Um, uh, you joined Microsoft in 2002, and, and you always have been it seems like you've always been working on the kernel team did you do anything before that
3: Yeah I came to Microsoft and uh, went straight onto the kernel team so I've had different kind of technology areas or you know roles that I've served as a developer to tech lead to I guess uh, architect now but uh, mostly it's been in the same technology space but I have spent time you know working on as I mentioned the componentization teams and also some of the virtualization stuff as well
1: it's very cool the first question that comes to mind is um, congratulations on merging the server 2008 and Vista kernels
3: yeah that uh, we've been basically running on the same core kernel for quite some time actually and typically they align a little off cycle so you would see that you know the Vista kernel, uh, was the client release, and then Vista SP1 and Server 2008 kernel were basically the same. The same, right? And so, um, in the previous release, it was sort of similar to that, where we took you know the Server 2003 kernel and that became the Vista kernel, and so on. And this last release was one where we we're able to tie you know basically do the client and the server at roughly the same time. But a lot of the core system components are actually shared. Um, So our team actually is the core OS division, and it's a shared team between the client and server. So most of our technologies just go straight into both products.
1: Hey, as long as we're talking about um, Vista and Server 2008, um, I heard that people are running Server 2008 on their desktop, uh, the 64-bit version, and turning on all of the graphics stuff and all of that, um, and which it essentially turns it into Vista 64-bit. But and I'm running it myself, and the only problems that I run into is with licensing because some software that's free on a client operating system won't run because of licensing. On it, so that's really the only the only issue that I'm getting into, and I think because of that, I'm going to go back to uh, Vista 64. Uh, on my desktop. And, and basically, I ran it because some people were saying that, um, that it ran faster you know, and had less problems and stuff. But I run them both. I run this on my core recording machine, I run Server 2008. And we also run 64 uh, bit on other machines that are used for editing. And we, I see virtually no difference between them.
3: Yeah, uh, Vista got a little bit of a um, bad rap when it first came out and a lot of the issues were actually addressed by the time of service pack 1 which i mentioned yep. a lot of the core system components are actually shared with server 2008 now a lot of like services and other things that aren't necessarily applicable in the server environment are right. off you know by default there right. which may contribute to like you know the perception that there is you know less activity or you know things like that so Definitely there's a difference, but you could achieve the same thing by shutting off a lot of stuff on your desktop as well. So, especially once you turn on all the graphics and stuff, you're basically almost in the same boat. Yeah,
1: it's pretty much the same OS. So, um, the, the other thing I want to mention, which might be of value to listeners is a, a little tip that I figured out, which is every once in a while you're running a 64 bit Vista or server 2008 64 desktop, whatever you're doing. 64 bit Vista will have a problem with a, with a piece of software or the piece of software will have a problem with the OS. And, and there's two things that you can do, I've figured out, to get them to run. And you know what happens when you run it and you'll get a dialog box that says, this application has stopped running. Almost immediately something happens. There's two things. One is to uh, right-click on the properties for that application, and you can set compatibility mode. Um, you set it to Windows XP, SP2. And the other thing you can do is data execution protection. Tell us a little bit about that, and and just you know, data execution protection is in your uh, control panel system performance advanced tab somewhere. I, it's not a, I can't find it off the top of my head, but tell us a little bit about that if you know.
3: Uh, the data execution protection, yeah, specifically, right? Um, yeah, so the this was happened. We added this stuff around the time of XPSV two. That was a year in which there was a lot of. Um, you know, security issues around and we reacted by putting a lot of hardening into the operating system. Right. And one of those is the data execution protection stuff. And basically what that is, is it prevents um, code execution out of uh, data regions, which is typically like, you know, not the intended um, space for code, right? Code is typically in the code pages and, you know, well-designated areas. And there's a few exceptions where code is dynamically generated and executed out of data. And for those, the application to work now on the newer operating systems because we are leveraging, you know, processor support to actually make sure you cannot execute out of, you know, improperly protected memory regions. The applications have the burden of, you know, basically explicitly protecting the memory as executable, which in the past they didn't have to do because we didn't use the um, processor support to actually treat that as illegal. So you could just allocate memory, you know, write some code into it, and then run it. And um, that would basically just work. And after we made these hardening changes, that needed to be explicitly done by the app. And so, of course, that interacts negatively with a whole bunch of apps. Sure. And uh, that's kind of where that option comes in. Um, by default, on 64 bit, we kind of enforce the NX protection. It's not a. Um, on x86, there's a 32 bit releases. It was a little more lenient because of the huge ecosystem, but the defaults on the 64 bit are um, that NX is enabled.
1: Okay. So so what it is is I'm it's Sorry, I was
3: using uh, NX and data execution protection. Ex- interchangeably okay. uh, NX is no execute
1: okay so what it is is it's a list of applications that you can add it's an exception list so if you have an application I had to do this with Sony Vegas 8 if you have an application that that otherwise you trust uh, you know it's something you purchased it's a it's a name brand application and it's not working you can add it to this exception list and then it won't uh, won't be
3: enforced. Is that now? Do you remember if that was a native thirty-two uh, bit or native sixty-four bit process? It or was, was it a, a. It's a
1: sixty-four bit version of Sony Vegas Eight.
3: Yeah. I see. And yeah. they still had to require the exception. Yep. I see.
1: Yeah. I don't know why, but that that seemed to fix the problem. Um. The, the what about the compatibility? That I know that's been in Windows for a long time, but I don't really know what it does. So, you know, when you set compatibility mode for a particular executable to a certain well, operating system, well, there's a
3: whole technology area that's around the um, app compat that we have, and when you set that option, what it does is. um, whenever we go to create a process, we do a lookup in an AppCompat database, say if there's an entry for that process or class of application. And by setting that option, you've actually created an entry effectively in that database. And uh, when we launch the process, we then end up basically loading the AppCompat engine. Even if it's not an explicit dependency of your process, we'll end up loading it into the address space and initializing it. And, you know, some of the things it does is, you know, install shimming hooks for various APIs. If you had dependency on old behavior of APIs, you know, it will, you know, it'll, you know, thunk those things through, you know, be it like, you know, some parameter that's treated differently. And it'll, like, set up uh, environment variables correctly. So, you know, for example, the version... So that way it can lie to the application about the version and things like that. So it basically tries to virtualize enough of the environment for an app so that it looks like it's running under an older system.
1: Do you ever sit back at the end of the day and just in total
3: amazement that this shit works at all? <laughs> it's, you know, I yeah. Mean, it's I mean, really the system has gotten so complex in trying to accommodate this because we always are trying to push the envelope, you know, yeah. for the good citizens and, like, guys who play by the rules but there's lots of apps and things out there that are kind of taking dependencies on the not documented or implicit contracts in the system and that makes up a large amount of our user base right which makes windows a predominant platform and so we have to make sure all that stuff works every release and yeah. you know back several releases and with windows 7 especially we've been pretty hardcore about not regressing any compatibility from vista because, you know, it took kind of a big hit with compatibility initially, right? We right. changed a lot of things in yep. the name of security and stuff. And, you know, I think those are all good changes, but, you know, the ecosystem wasn't quite ready for all of that. Yeah. And with Windows 7, we're saying, okay, we rocked the boat sufficiently there. So now let's just try to keep everything on par. So the people migrating from Vista to Windows 7 should see uh, no issue. And I think the ecosystem has now sort of adapted to Vista. So... Hopefully, it will be a painless transition for those people.
1: Yeah, I imagine it will be. The uh, What we know about Windows 7, of course, even the beta is faster than XP and with less memory footprint. That was no accident, was it?
3: Yeah, no, we've been very, very hard at work on uh, performance in this release. So, performance and footprint. So, I'm glad to see some of that stuff coming to fruition now in the press and whatnot.
2: Arun, I saw a great story uh, about you and uh, Mark and I think it was around the thread scheduler. Can you Mm -hmm. you tell that tale?
3: Yeah, sure. So that specific issue was around uh, scheduler uh, scalability. And so, as, as we mentioned before, I work in the kernel team. And in Windows 7, you know, we were talking about the kernel being shared. The kernel will also be part of the next server release, uh, which is Windows Server 2008 uh, R2. And um, that basically will have support for greater than 64 processors, which is Whoa. kind of a big feature um, for the operating system. I mean, to this point, we've only been able to support... The number of processors equal to, you know, the bitness of the system because of the way our data structures are internally. So, for example, on a 32 bit system, you could support up to 32 processors on a 64 bit up to 64. And so going this next step to go above 64 required us to kind of replumb a lot of the data structures in the kernel to, you know, not assume that limitation. And so we did that, and that was like the first big bunch of work, you know, to get to run on, you know, uh, 128 and 256 processors, which is what uh, the server will support. But the next bottleneck we hit once we do that is the actual scalability, which is, you know, the bottlenecks within the operating system and, you know, beyond the operating system, the applications, where they cannot actually scale to run on that many CPUs. And one big problem area that we saw in a lot of the uh, server workloads was in the thread scheduler and in memory management and in the cache manager. These are all three kernel components. And uh, basically the contention that we would see on the, you know, synchronization inside these components would basically tend to degrade the more and more CPUs you add because, you know, you have more CPUs contending for these locks And depending on how long they are held and the frequency at which they're, you know, that the lock is acquired, you can basically have kind of negative scaling almost as you increase the number of processors because, you know, for example, if we have like 10 guys in line and I I use the lock, I, you know, I do my work and then I go basically, I need to turn around and grab it right away. If the other guys have queued up in that time, I have to go to the end of the line. Right. Right basically to wait for my turn again because we try to ensure fairness with these locks and other tricks like that. And so as we go, you know, up to 128 processors in our initial benchmarks, we saw that, you know, we're basically um, scaling not as well as we would like. I mean, we've scaled like 1.4x, which isn't bad, um, in, in the SQL Server benchmark, which TPCC Initially, and right. um, in that we had about 15% of CPU time spent spinning on the scheduler lock, which is called the dispatcher lock. So just the time um, to
2: take to switch between threads was 15% of the processor availability.
3: Wow. Right. Well, no, it's even a little bit worse than that because, on, um, so typically, there's two types of locks that you can have. In user mode, most of the locks you have are basically blocking locks. Like, if you can't get the lock, uh, you block, you wait, right? And the, the scheduler will pick up another thread to run, right? So, there's some point, there's some environment at which, basically, the thread scheduler itself has to run, right? And then, above that, other code will run. And, you know, once you reach that level, the you basically can't context switch anymore. Wow. Meaning you can't use these locks that block. So you actually to end up using what we call spin locks. In a spin lock, you basically just spin. You literally spin on the memory location waiting for it to indicate the lock is available. Uh, you can do tricks to optimize the cache pinging and stuff, right? But effectively, that's the idea. And that's just wasted CPU time. You can't run another thread. So you can maybe run interrupts and stuff that can run at higher... Interrupt level than that, but effectively you can't, like, quantum man, you can't run a different thread. So the CPU is basically just spinning. And so if you think about, that's, these are spin locks, because we're talking about inside our, our kernel, the scheduler, and so it can, you know, context switch at its level. And so that's 15% of time we were talking about, which is, you can, you know, roughly do the math, you could say that it's over 15 CPUs that are just spinning basically full-time you know, when we run these workloads. And that's all wasted time that ideally the application could be using, right?
2: Well, and also just you hit a point where you no longer can scale, right?
3: Right. And so we have two uh, facilities in the OS, and we added one more um, in Win 7. We have threads, and we have fibers, And fibers are kind of lightweight threads that you can context switch between in user mode, but they have some compatibility ramifications with Win32 um, because all the state is not correctly virtualized, so you can't, like, intermix fibers that well with Win32 stuff. But a lot of people ended up using fibers, including SQL, to get the optimal performance so they can kind of bypass the kernel thread scheduler for a lot of, um, like, heavy-duty, like, scheduling stuff. Um, And in Win 7, we've added the user mode scheduling package, which kind of bridges the gap between threads and fibers, where we let you context switch in user mode, but all the state is virtualized. And so, you can basically, you know, run with 100% compatibility with Win 32, yet you have all the flexibility around that. Um, But when I mentioned the 1.4x number, this is back before the user mode scheduling or UMS came into the picture... We had a 1.4x there, and we actually had a degradation when you ran in threads mode. Ouch! And now for consumers, that's like the bigger deal because the fiber mode is higher performance. But because of this interop issues with uh, Win32, it's not always a recommended mode of operation in the field. So most people actually end up using threads. So in that state, we weren't in a great position without actually going in and tackling these tough scalability problems in the kernel.
2: Okay, so how do you fix this? Well,
3: Loaded question.
2: (laughs) Well, this is an awesome problem. At this point, I'm like, all right, I'm going home. You got five minutes, go.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So we basically have, I mean, the dispatcher lock is, you know, the main scheduler lock in the system. And basically what it does is it protects all the core you know, data structures and synchronization objects related to thread scheduling. Um, so if you've ever used APIs like wait for single object or wait for multiple objects or whatever the managed equivalents would be, yeah, um, those end up in the kernel basically taking this dispatcher lock. And the idea is if you say, okay, I want to wait on these five objects, if you think about the implementation of that, somebody's got to atomically you know, examine the state of each of them. If they are signaled, then you basically don't have to wait. If they are not signaled, you have to somehow express your intent to wait until a signal occurs and then swap off the CPU. And that transition process from running to examining these objects to waiting was basically protected by the dispatcher lock. So that was a simplifying design in the original days of NT because, you know, some threads could wait on a set of, you know, three or N objects and another thread could wait on a set of, you know, N prime objects which have a non-zero intersection. So the same two threads could actually have some objects in common in their weight set. So if you have a lock for each object or some more complicated thing, you got to be very careful with the lock ordering involved and things like that. Otherwise, you have deadlock. And so using one global lock for this thing was um, a great simplifying thing in the early days of NT, right? Where scaling to these kind of limits wasn't necessarily the topmost requirement, right? These problems with scaling and contention on the lock get really bad as you get to, like, you know, 16-plus CPUs. And back, you know, in 1989, when the original design was done, that was, like, pretty exotic system, right? Yeah, that
2: was off the, well. Two cores was exotic. Right. And in the server
3: space, there were some larger configurations, but we're talking like four, eight, and like, you know, the ramp to much larger uh, server configurations took a long time, right? And so you have a trade-off there where you could have lots of fine-grained locks, which you get a lot more parallelism, but you get a lot more complexity. And also you get like more path length in in the case where there isn't contention, right? So if you're operating primarily on the smaller processor configurations you could take possibly performance degradation right because right. you don't have the contention and you're just paying for additional instructions in all these pads yeah and so that wasn't a primary design goal at in you know in those times to make this as parallel as possible but the thing is over time the thing kind of organically grew and expanded into other areas in the kernel and like the the What it protected, which is the transition from running to waiting for a thread, it kind of got intertwined with a lot of other things that the kernel scheduler supports. So, for example, it also supports uh, APCs, which are asynchronous procedure calls. So, this is kind of like uh, a signal from the Unix world. You can, like, send an APC to a thread, and, you know, if it's running, it interrupts the thread. But if it's waiting, it unweights the thread so that it can run the APC. So that code path is kind of on the side, but that has to also synchronize with it. So that needs the dispatcher lock also. Uh, alerts are similar; they just don't have a payload with them, but they just wake a thread up. Whereas an APC wakes a thread up and has a routine to run. But alerts also had to synchronize. So you know, then there's like a timeout, which when you think about when you say you know wait for multiple objects with a timeout, the timeout is actually modeled as an object also, but it's a or relationship. So if you say, I want to wait for all these objects and you give five objects and then you say with timeout, the semantics that becomes underneath is these five, like as an and operation or the right. timeout and the timeout can fire and then undo the wait. So we have all those kinds of issues that kind of organically grew and got intertwined with the dispatcher lock. And so when you want to break it, you got to kind of approach the whole problem and get like an incremental sort of solution that can allow you to unravel the whole thing, but in a way where you don't have kind of the, you know, write all the code and you're at the end, but it's impossible to actually feel good about, like when you hit a bug because you've, you know, gone through so many, so much code change in between. So the challenge is actually to try to decompose it into from point A to point B, and kind of have a series of incremental, like, fully operational steps in between, where maybe even some of the steps were, like, taking, you know, some steps backward, right? Like, you do extra work that you'd have to undo in the next milestone, but at least this way, each step you could validate pretty with pretty high confidence, and so that when we end up at the final implementation, we don't have the whole mess of code to debug, right? that the uh, the synchronization bugs or whatever would possibly make the problem extremely difficult to figure out what went wrong where.
1: You know what? I just felt a disturbance in the force. It was <laughs> it was as if 200,000 listeners all simul-
2: simultaneously reached for the Excedrin bottle. Wow. But the funny part is this is all stuff that directly impacts us in the end because this is the threading model. All of the code that we build comes down to the kernel at some point to get a thread.
1: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you this message. One of the drawbacks of using third-party tools is that you have to deal with numerous vendors. So say goodbye to consistent quality and service level. Fortunately, that's not always the case. Our friends at Telerik, for example, are a true one-stop shop for .NET. They recently rolled out their Q1 release, which is just packed with good stuff. Start with Silverlight. An incredible grid, chart, editor, and everything else. A whole suite. A 3D chart. Yes, 3D in Silverlight is coming soon as well. The traditionally strong ASP.NET AJAX suite got even cooler. New controls, Visual Studio extensions for quick project kickstarts, new examples and skins, you name it. And how about web testing? Yep. Telerik is now offering a powerful solution for automated testing of modern Ajax applications. It's called Web UI Test Studio and is developed in partnership with Art of Test. Then comes reporting, WPF, WinForms, but I'm running out of time. So just go to www.telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com and be amazed. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. How closely did you, did you uh, the kernel team, that is you, work with uh,
3: the Parallel Task Library people? Oh, the, the user mode scheduling stuff that I mentioned, mm. um, that was actually done with a lot of um, discussion with the Parallel Programming Runtime group. Um, mm. Because they want to build their runtime to use that facility, um, the user yeah. mode scheduler stuff. So this is kind of this direction we're going longer term where a lot of the scheduling policy and, you know, context switching and stuff, you can kind of push out of the kernel scheduler. So the kernel scheduler is basically a general purpose scheduler, but any apps that need specialization can effectively build the second level scheduler in, you know, and not have to incur the kernel overhead of like context switching between real threads. So they can use these user mode threads to achieve that. And I think Mark has talked about that also um, in his video at Channel 9. So, our, our goal when we look at the thread scheduler is basically, or the kernel in general, is that it's the foundation, as you were saying. So, yeah. any bottlenecks we have there kind of limit anything that the ecosystem can do above it.
2: And especially with right. the
3: dispatcher lock, it had gotten to the point where you're seeing a lot of complexity in the ecosystem because people were trying to avoid code paths or the simpler algorithms because they were worried the effect that it would have on their scalability to go through the thread scheduler. So for example, um, there was set event and wait for single object used to take the dispatcher lock, right? And drivers would do all these complicated things to like amortize the cost of setting or waiting on events or, because they didn't want to take a dependency on the dispatcher lock, right? And so by eliminating that now, we kind of have opened up the the possibilities for these people to avoid kind of engineering around the kernel, but just using the kernel primitives with kind of faith that they're as optimal as they can be and as scalable as they can be.
2: Well, and that's the goal, right? They should want to use your library because that's the fastest way to do it.
3: Ideally, yes, and as scalable as possible, right? And so they right. can innovate in their space rather than trying to build, like, you know, meta-synchronization or other primitives around what the OS provides. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this and this this expands into all the other areas in the kernel, not just the thread scheduler stuff.
2: So, and are we specifically talking about Windows 7 here? Like, this, is, this new thread scheduler is going to be for 7?
3: Yeah, this is in 7. This is in the beta you're using. Um, so... And the other thing that, you know, as, as we were getting at, this the primary motivator here is server. Right. But as we move forward now, we're not in the world anymore where, you know, desktop machines have one processor. No, not at all. Now we're talking like uh, at least two, probably more like four in the next uh, year or even more than that, right? Eight, yeah. And um, that's definitely a place where the parallelism that the operating system provides because the individual CPUs are no longer getting faster at the same rate, we're just adding more, we need the workloads to start scaling, and we need the operating system to not be a impediment to that. And right. so this work will eventually translate to benefits on the client as well.
2: Well, we no longer have a uniprocessor version of Windows, right? There's only I remember the old NT days where you could run the multi-core version, which was
3: really two cores, or the single-core version, and that's, that's gone. Yeah, that's gone. Because, I mean, as we mentioned, I mean, the reality is there's two sides to that. A, there's no one that really has the single-processor machines anymore. Right. And uh, it's not that the multiprocessor version does not run properly on a UP system. It just is not optimized for that case. Right. right. Like we had some tricks in there where, for example, the spin locks are implemented differently because you don't have to compete with different processor at any time. You only have interrupts to deal with on your same CPU. And so you could do some tricks there. But the marginal gain now where that's not a common case, and it's a uh, maintenance burden for the OS team to actually have, you know, two kernel versions. Sure. We just deemed that was not worth it or just there's no point anymore, and we should optimize now for the MP kernels, right? Yeah.
2: Well, it makes sense, and we've all, I mean, we're not going to have 128 cores on our desktop this week, but it's hard to imagine what we will have in, say, 10 years.
3: Right. I mean, when you look at something like the new Core i7, from Intel, yeah, um, that that processor is basically a quad core, but it's hyper threaded, and so it has effectively eight CPUs, right? And that's right. A, that's a single socket, so that's basically a desktop that has that is already an eight processor machine, and we would never have imagined that on the desktop a couple years ago, right? And that's already here, basically. I thought so, hyper
1: threading was evil.
3: So. It's an interesting thing. The hyperthreading basically, the idea is they replicate a portion of the processor and they kind of utilize the... They kind of, like, share the rest of the CPU facility and they just have, like, you know, the registers duplicated. And so there is a benefit to it when your actual physical cores are fully saturated. Then you can eke a little more performance out by using the hyperthreads, right? And for the processor vendors it's very cheap to build a hyperthread because it's not a full processor core. Right. So the the, the the tension is basically that you can't treat a hyperthread and a core equally as far as scheduling is concerned. Right. If a core is free, meaning both hyperthreads are idle versus there's a core whose one thread is busy and one thread is idle, you want to prefer the one where the uh, hyperthread is, Um, Both hyperthreads are idle. Right. So that's basically the mechanism that the Windows scheduler uses now to get better performance out of these SMT or hyperthreaded machines. Um, We basically try very hard not to use the hyperthreads until the utilization on the individual cores, where we're basically using one hyperthread per core, is maxed. And then we'll allow the scheduler to start using additional hyper-threads. This actually lets us basically get maximum performance out of them, right? Right. So you,
2: you use, first thread comes up, runs on the first core. Second thread comes up, you go to the other core, your core number two, not the, the hyper-threading option of the first core, until you have all four occupied, and then you'd start using the hyperthreaded threaded lines on the four core main cores.
3: Yeah, that's effectively, yeah, that's basically the algorithm. And that way, you basically get any additional benefit that you might achieve by running it when your machine is busy, but you're not penalizing the cases where the machine isn't busy. Because if two threads are running at the same time, they can conflict with each other, right? Because they're basically seamlessly being context switched by the hardware, you could say, right? And they'll like, you know, evict each other's caches or whatever. And you don't want to pay that penalty until. You've actually maximized what you can get out of the machine, which is spreading out across the cores.
2: And the issue here is, I remember correctly from P four is that the hyper-threaded part of the of the of a given core, it isn't a full pipeline. So there are times when it may force the main pipeline to empty before it can finish its execution.
3: Well, yeah, this is kind of the thing where they're sharing some of the functional units. So right if they both are trying to use the same unit at the same time one guy's gonna have to stall and wait till it's available right? right or when they they're sharing the cache as well so when the one guy runs he could evict the other guy's cache entries right and they could kind of thrash each other in that sense cuz they're not actually running at disjoint periods in time right they're kind of running in this interleaved way by the processor
2: so, I mean, the challenge here is that the idea of hyperthreading with these sort of two cores, well, a core and a, and, a, and a core and a half, or a half a core, if they were both working on similar stuff on separate threads so that they could share their cache items and so forth, they'd work together really, really well. But it's, it's really tough to find how to identify two threads that ought to be together like that.
3: Right. And you see, that the thing is like, maybe that's true if they're in the same process. But that's not necessarily true because thre- processes have lots of threads that are not necessarily related, right, in different sure. DLLs or yeah. whatever. So it's not like the OS can take a good guess at this either. And so we just have to do the general, like, best effort that we can, given on what we know are the properties of the hardware.
2: Well, and it makes me wonder if we're not, again, going to see... Programmers able to say, "Hey, you should if you give it a chance to use hyperthreading, use these threads together uh, at a higher level of the language." Right. But you know, what my concern is, you're going to get up to the four cores, and then you're going to start using the hyperthreaded cores, and it's going to be a cliff for performance. You're going to go faster, 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 and then you're just going to get slammed.
3: Yeah. So it actually ends up being that the mar- the marginal gain we see in most cases in using the hyperthreads once you get fully loaded, is yeah. almost always better than not using the hyperthreads at all. Right. So, but you, don't, but you don't get the same speed up as if it would have been an additional core. And so that's kind no. of the, the point we're at now with the hyperthreading technology. So I think we're, obviously, we would prefer to have real cores, but since yeah. it's easy for them to add these and we can get something out of them, that's kind of the direction we're taking.
1: We've had a problem in the studio with um, virtual synthesizer programs from native instruments like the B4, which is a Hammond B3 modeler. And uh, when we were running on a machine with hyperthreading, if you didn't uh, set the affinity, if you didn't affinitize it to just run on one CPU or what it thinks is one CPU, you'd get all sorts of stuck notes and crazy crap would happen. Like there's something in the queue... Uh, of the process processing MIDI data that doesn't work with hyper threading that works just fine with multiple cores. So you have these problems with programs from time to time with hyper threading. This is this is how I learned uh, hyper threading was evil. But right, and so
3: a lot of these, a lot of the enhancements I mentioned now are not in the Vista or Server two thousand eight kernel. Right, like we've done a lot of SMT work in Windows Seven. So simultaneous multi-threading and hyper-threading, I'm using them interchangeably. But um, some of these issues um, where we were doing non-optimal placement of threads onto sharing hyper-threads and stuff exists in the Vista um, kernel. And so that should be mitigated. Like we want to remove some of this, you know, stress of, you know, end users trying to affinitize threads and things like that and worry about the topology. Um, and we have been able to improve that quite a bit in Windows 7.
2: Yeah, I think most developers just want that stuff to work. They don't really want to figure out how to, uh, to affinitize to a thread or that I even need to.
3: Right. And in general, we don't want people to affinitize threads either because that imposes a constraint onto the scheduler. And so... What that means is it has to honor that. And we don't know if you're just saying that as a soft affinity or a really stringent requirement. Right. So, for example, if you affinitize the processor zero and the other CPUs are busy or free, idle, uh, you can't use them because the scheduler has to run you on zero or it thinks it has to run you on zero. And so, in general... For most applications, it's better not to because that way you give the scheduler full flexibility to run you wherever there's a free CPU resource.
2: Well, and I often wonder if we don't, when we have to do that stuff, and I think about the same thing with around, say, garbage collection and .NET and so forth, we often do it wrong. So, like, I wonder if the problems that Carl was having with those synthesizers was really that that the programmers did something kind of funky in multi-threading, and so when they ran into hyper-threading, it, it didn't work right, and it was, it was in theory, their fault, because they weren't following some kind of best practice that they may or may not have known about. You just get into these traps because, for better or worse, the infrastructure we're using, there's a lot of variation in it. You can get a lot of different yeah. kinds of processors, a lot of different configurations.
1: And it's very forgiving when you're developing.
3: Yeah, exactly. So, for example, your synthesizer, if they didn't actually take into account the... P characteristic or hyper characteristic, they might have affinitized, or maybe not that application, but some other one could have affinitized, you know, to each CPU. But that actually would put two threads hard-bound to the same, to two hyper-threads. Whereas if they just didn't do anything and let the scheduler optimally place their threads, they wouldn't have done that. Right? Right. Absolutely. So, so, that's kind of the thing that we would like applications to avoid. I mean, There's obviously some very high-performance applications such as SQL Server or, you know, database or high-end workloads like that where they need total understanding of the topology, right? Like where the NUMA nodes so they can allocate memory from the appropriate nodes and they want to run threads close to those nodes and so on where they kind of have a better idea of what they're doing. But I think for the most part, I totally agree that the applications should not really get into that business.
2: Yeah, well, that's, you know, the same reason we're in .NET. We don't want to deal with managing memory. Like, we like getting abstracted away from that so we can focus on the business problem we're trying to solve, which is obviously very different from your job, Arun, because you're writing in C++ down at the metal, right? You care about processors, and you've you've had to write code that says, oh, I'm I'm dealing with hyperthreads, do this differently. Right. Well, and of course,
1: threading is something that is very difficult to make high-level tools that work in every situation. And the parallel task library does a, a good job of it, but you still have to create tasks and set them off. And, you know, it's just not, uh, doesn't lend its, it. you really have to be down at that level to do it right. And, and there's still, it's still not an exact science, is it? I mean, you're still making compromises. Oh, well, this might fail one in five million times, whereas the other way might fail one in a hundred thousand.
3: Well, by fail you mean be a non-optimal decision
1: or a deadlock or something.
3: Well, we we basically we're pretty stringent on that. Like we have no, we put a lot of um, ordering, you know, validation and stuff in. So, and we have strict lock hierarchies and stuff like that. So we basically, to our knowledge, have zero deadlocks. I I know
1: you don't have you don't have deadlocks, but we do. (laughs) You know, when we program ourselves into them. Um, yeah. Sometimes there's just, you know, sometimes you find yourself in that position where there isn't any one way to write what you're trying to write. Yeah. And and be completely safe, calling another thread from an event handler, for example.
3: I mean, there's that's some of the things that we have to improve in our system as well. Like one of the famous problems is with DLL main, um, where we actually do a call out to arbitrary code under a system lock. That creates a complexity for applications that they don't really need to worry about in an ideal world because if you have another thread that actually calls into the loader um, under an application lock, let's say, you've implicitly created a deadlock because we've called you holding our lock. You could call into us holding your lock and it's very easy to invert that and most developers have no idea. And so... One of our goals moving forward is to find these kind of areas in our system and kind of, you know, decrease the probability, if not eliminate it, that, you know, developers can get themselves into these kind of deadlocks with the operating system, at least. Yeah, it's enough to
2: make your head explode. (laughs) Uh Yeah. I, run, I don't want to change gears here. I know we're running low on time, but I didn't want to let you go before we talked a little bit about virtualization. Uh, it's certainly okay. a technology near and dear to my heart, and I'm wondering if we're not just going to see more of it with Windows Seven. Uh, I, what was what's your role in virtualization?
3: So I'm primarily in the the kernel group, but I have worked some on the hypervisor technology. So you know, I did write part of the hypervisor scheduler as well, and um, Contributed to some of the kernel side work related to the hypervisor. And so by that, I mean, we have places in our operating system where we can behave more optimally if we know we're running on a hypervisor. Um, Right. And those are the what we call enlightenments. And so I Uh. work with the virtualization team to identify those locations and, you know, make those kind of changes to our OS. So ideally, an enlightened OS will run much better than a non-enlightened OS on a, on a given hypervisor.
2: Well, and it's, it's amazing to me that when, that stuff just works running in a virtual environment, that it's the same, just knowing yep. the complexities of that abstraction. And I guess enlightenments are, are one of the keys to that, because the early days of virtualization, it was pretty brutal to run virtual.
3: Yeah, so the kind of a lot of the difficult... So for the most part, some of the inha- processor features that Intel and AMD have provided you know, allow that to be pretty nicely managed. They have virtualization extensions. But a lot of the complexities come into kind of how do we abstract away, like, devices and things like that and emulate them properly and, like, where do we run the drivers and how do we maintain isolation between virtual machines. And then particularly you get into some interesting scheduling challenges when you look at uh, multiprocessor virtual machines because when you run on bare metal the, you know, there's no reason that processors aren't able to run concurrently, right? Because by nature, the fact that it's bare metal, the processors are always running. Yes. Now, when you go to a virtualized environment, that's not true anymore. And so we have mechanisms by which we try to ensure that we don't get into bad situations where For example, a a virtual processor is waiting for another virtual CPU that's not running, but at the same time, we don't want to do what we call gang scheduling, which is run all virtual CPUs as a block together, because A, not all of the virtual CPUs always have something to do. And so by doing that, you get machine underutilization, because you could have been running virtual processors from another virtual machine, right, in those idle cycles that we would dedicate unnecessarily. And so... Kind of bridging that gap and like kind of figuring out like what's the right trade off there and maintaining the right performance and not getting into like pathological cases where multiple virtual processors are scheduled to the same actual processor because then if they're waiting on each other, they just waste their quantum basically because the other guy's like waiting to run on that processor, and so stuff like that is like where we end up into a lot of challenges to you know achieve parity with native hardware.
2: Yeah, you've got to have you've got these virtual threads running inside of these virtual machines that then have to be assigned to real threads on real processors. And I guess the whole it's almost anomalous to even think of. I have a multi-core virtual machine. Is is that even real? Actually, am I actually then saying I'm going to
3: run on two different cores? So today with the Hyper V, you are you are able to create a you know an MP virtual machine. And yes, we do try to then ensure that the two virtual processors are executed in parallel wherever possible, and they're not queued onto the same logical processor.
0: So
3: the terminology we use is logical processors is like real processors, and then virtual processors are the processors inside a virtual machine. And then on top of that, you have threads, which the kernel is trying to schedule inside a virtual machine. And then on top of that... You now could have a user mode scheduler that's trying to schedule user mode threads on top of NT threads, so you can have like an interesting hierarchy of scheduling, you know, all the way from the metal up to the application that's running. It's kind of a gets kind of mind boggling when you start thinking about it, right? Because at each level, there's certain assumptions that are being made about what can be running in parallel, where, right? And as you add additional layers of virtualization, that complicates things.
2: Well, before
1: we wrap it up here, what can you tell developers to expect in the coming years from, uh, from development tools dealing with multiple processors? I mean, besides what we have now, parallel task library aside.
3: Well, we're not exactly you know, in the development team, the dev dev side of things. Mm -hmm. But kind of a big initiative that we're, you know, thinking about at at the moment is how do we really enable the concurrency runtime, right? Like how can we push, you know, the get developers out of the business of having to worry about uh, all the parallelism themselves or enable them to express it very simply in some new language or language constructs. And actual threading and synchronization aspects are managed transparently by the runtime and optimal CPU use and things like that. From our operating system side, what we're going to try to do is, you know, make sure that these run times can kind of coexist. The run times instantiated several times between several processes because we would have to allocate to them for them to run optimally. We'd have to kind of maybe give them a block of CPUs that they can reuse for some period of time. And it gets kind of interesting now because when you have, like, the user mode scheduling running, they don't really want the traditional, you know, time slicing per thread kind of scheduling. What they want is a sort of an epoch scheduling where you'd give an, a, a runtime, possibly a set of cores for some long period of time, right? And then let, let it kind of multiplex its work and run its user mode scheduler however it would like within that window. And then you kind of, you know, go to the next thing. But then you get kind of interesting issues on well, how do you negotiate that between multiple applications? How do you maintain a reasonable latency for applications if you're doing these big blocks of time? And so you get into lots of interesting issues around there. And a lot of these things are now made possible by the fact that we're just going to have so much compute resources on the desktop that we never imagined possible, right? The other side of this that we're looking at is related on the developer side is this whole idea of heterogeneous and many core, which is where not all the processors are identical in your system. So this would be like where you can kind of ship work off to some other cores or special purpose cores that may have a subset of the instruction set available or are specialized for a particular purpose like graphics or like physics or other things. And so there's a trend towards that and yeah. So how do we model? How do we model this? Like these? How do you use these uh, different cores or heterogeneous architectures? And how do you expose that to developers? Like, do they need to know like what what capabilities exist, or do we kind of abstract it by having a you know some kind of a JIT sort of model where you can write in a virtual or an intermediate language for it and these accelerators basically have a runtime that translates that to the appropriate instructions and executes them but then you get interesting issues around how do you share those accelerators between you know the between applications that are trying to use them like how do you ensure requests get processed in an right. orderly fashion and so there's a lot of interesting stuff coming down the pipeline and now we're kind of at an interesting inflection point where we're trying to figure out between the OS and the developer technology how to best use that.
2: Yeah, I think that we we're, we're not we're underestimating how much horsepower sitting in our GPUs these days that could be utilized for other things. Well, unless exactly. you have
1: four screens.
3: <laughs> yeah. Who would do that? Who would know. do that? <laughs> uh, but but exactly. I mean, that's a good point because if you look at some of the newer architectures coming out from some of the processor vendors, the GPUs are actually nothing but a whole bunch of cores maybe slower speed But they basically support a similar instruction set architecture to the mainline, you know, Intel or IA32 instruction set is basically going to be implemented by the processors that are behaving as the graphics chip. And so how can we utilize that to, like, do things when, you know, use some of the spare cycles there? Or sure. how can we model that effectively, right?
2: Yeah, and, and and can we make that transparent to the line of business developer or do they have to know? It, it's a tough question. I've, it's exciting times, really. I think these are going to be very cool apps to build.
3: Yeah. I think the key to make it all successful is exactly what you said, is kind of getting the right abstraction to the developers because they kind of need to know some of these capabilities exist, but the capabilities need to be abstract enough that it's easy for them to negotiate and deal with it, right? And not have to manage specific, you know, different versions of these accelerators themselves, right? You want to abstract that so that it's easy for them to utilize the power there. Absolutely. Well, that
1: just about wraps it up for us. Man, it's been, a, it's been really enlightening. My head hurts a little bit, but I like that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, we just touched on a lot of things, so hopefully the Audience found that interesting, and you know, yeah.
1: definitely. Thank you, Arun. No problem. Okay, and we'll see you next time. Dotnet Rocks. <laughs> Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering video, post-production, and podcasting services, online at www.pwop.com. Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft Development Technology with expert developers, online at www.franklins.net.